Yo, what's good everyone? It's Anushan and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. Howdy how y'all. Welcome to another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. Joining me today are our resident Knicks fan, AC. What's up, guys? Go New York 2022. We might make the second round of the playoffs, baby. <laughs> uh, wishful thinking. It's so adorable. And our resident LeBron stan and also Andre Drummond stan, Eric. I'm going to really need you to take that Andre Drummond out this year. I am not a stan <laughs> of his. <laughs> So I'll take the LeBron's uh, slander, but not Andre Drummond. We got to do better. It's a new year. But what's up, guys? <laughs> then you have me, Aswi, your resident Sixers fan, blessed being with the gift of foresight, also known as Aswi Dramas. And the guy who does all our podcast editing. So thanks for that, Aswi. We do appreciate it over here. <laughs> no doubt. Well- <laughs> well, today, guys, I thought it'd be fun if we previewed the 2021-22 season, or as the NBA would say, the diamond year, the 75th season of the NBA. I'm hyped, First. guys. I am so hyped for this season. I'm I'm hyped for them to drop that list of the 75 greatest players ever. I'm hyped for all the teams, like even the ones that are not contenders, but that have young, promising players coming up, and then all the contenders as well. Seeing them in action, I like literally cannot wait for the season to begin. All right, so that's dope and all, but what the hell is a diamond year? I don't get the significance of the diamond here. Well, it's like a, a diamond jubilee is your like 75th. So, you know, your 75th birthday or your 75th anniversary is like your diamond anniversary or something like that. Oh, is that why the NBA has those patches with the diamonds on them now? Like on the... yep. On the Nike logo and also on the everything. actual NBA player logo? Yep, everything. It's all diamond theme because it's their diamond year. Sweet, sweet. Yeah. So to that end, I thought we could go through a list of the 10 things to watch out for in this upcoming season. And guys, I'm a Sixers fan. I've got to talk about the one thing that's been on my mind constantly. What will Daryl Morey do about Ben Simmons? Honestly, I, I do think that we should defer to you when it comes to Sixers. But as I see it, there's a bit of a paradox that this team faces, right? Because you have Daryl Morey, who has always been in the business of star hunting. And then you have Ben Simmons, who is unfortunately a flawed star. And everyone saw those flaws on a, to a national audience on the biggest stage in the playoffs last year. So you have a situation where you have a GM who wants to trade for a star But what team is going to give a star to get Ben Simmons? The teams that have a star to give probably don't want Ben Simmons back. Like if they're already a good enough team where they think that Ben Simmons could put them over the top, they'd they'd hope to get Ben Simmons through picks and young players, not other stars. Because I don't think anyone out there thinks that Ben Simmons would put them over the top. So why would they trade their star for Ben Simmons? Dude, that's a good point. I mean, I, I honestly don't know what Daryl Morey is going to do, but all I can say is trust in Morey. I mean, the man has an impeccable track record. Yes, he doesn't have championships. That's the one thing people knock him on. But again, he ran into a Super Team Warriors for like, what, five straight years? So look, Daryl Morey does not make bad deals. I mean, you guys on the show have been saying for months, well, why doesn't Daryl Morey do this move? Or why doesn't Daryl Morey do that move? But the thing is, he's waiting for the right move. And yes, there is this fear in the back of my mind, which is, well, is he waiting too long? You know, is he going to pull a Nerlens Noel and, you know, leave 80 million on the table and sign for far less? Like, I don't know. It's possible, right? But then you have guys like Shams reporting today that apparently if the Portland season does not start off well, Damian Lillard could ask out. Now, obviously, it's a lot of if and could, a lot of hypotheticals. But I mean, Daryl Morey's always been about finding disgruntled stars and bringing them over. That's his bread and butter. I think what AC said is very like, I I guess it it underscores how I think about the Ben Simmons situation in in Philadelphia. It is a paradoxical dilemma in the sense that he's a star and he has ability 
and some acclaim and he has name recognition. But at this point, his value amongst like the movers and shakers in the league is probably very, very low that it doesn't seem at this moment that the Sixers will be able to get return on a trade of Simmons that is commiserate to what we would have previously thought his value was. So I'm actually incredibly curious to see how this plays out and to see if the Sixers and Daryl Morey can actually salvage some of his like previous thought of trade value. I got a question for you, Oswee. What happens if this big trade that Daryl Morey is looking for actually doesn't happen? I mean, is there any sort of reporting on whether Ben Simmons is actually going to play or what his role is going to be? Because I know that now he's at practice as of the day of recording. He was he played in practice today. But is he actually going to play for the Sixers? I mean, what the hell is going on with that? Whether or not he wants to play, the inevitable fact is if he does not play and he's eligible to play, he's going to lose big time money, right? So I don't know. I, I feel like... If and when he does play for the Sixers, the minute he steps on the court at Wells Fargo, he will be met with a shower of booze. But at the same time, he kind of doesn't have a choice. I mean, unless he mysteriously slips in the shower a la John Wall and injures himself, then yeah, maybe he's out, <laughs> right? <laughs> but or, or, or like your guy, Andrew Bynum, back in the day when his bowling, bowling injury. Oh, God. Oh, don't, <laughs> yo, don't, don't remind me of the time before the process, all right? That being said, um, let's hope it doesn't get to this. At the very least, I feel like we can trade Ben for assets and maybe not the move to get the star, but the move before the move to get the star. If that takes an extra year, I mean, so be it. It it is what it is, right? Like you can only work with what you got. And so, I mean, all I can say is I'm living vicariously through Eric's Lakers because of LeBron this year. So also in December, the first batch of players who signed one-year extensions this offseason are eligible to be traded. And in January, a few more such players are available to be included in trades. So I've heard that those are sort of two potential windows. And of course, you have the, the trade deadline, which is you know soon after the All-Star game. So I got a question for you. Gun to your head, is Ben Simmons a member of the Philadelphia 76ers at the time of the All-Star game? Gun to my head? Well, I mean, if I'm wrong about this, I'm about to have a bullet through my head. But I want to say that Ben is gone by then. I just don't see how he sticks around. I mean, the combination of him not wanting to be there and, I mean, if he doesn't play, he's just going to get fined for months on end. He's going to want out. I mean, there's pressure building from the fan base, from Rich Paul, from so many angles for Maury to get a deal done. And, uh, I mean, good on him for not cracking under the pressure and and waiting for the right moment. All I will say, though, is I agree with Stephen A. Smith on this one. Daryl Morey, he's a hawk. He's watching all this stuff. He's watching what's happening with the Nets. He's watching Kyrie kind of try to implode that team. He's watching what's happening with Damon Lillard's situation in Portland and Bradley Beal in Washington. And who knows? Between now and the All-Star break, a lot can happen. Players and teams that look good right now may not look good by then. And if you're a star talent and you're on a subpar team and your front office is getting called by Daryl Morey, wouldn't you want to go to Philadelphia at that point to play with Joel Embiid? I would. Yeah, I totally agree, Oswee. Well, since we're talking about this whole Ben Simmons situation and disgruntled stars, we might as well go on to our next thing to watch for this season, which is the whole Damian Lillard situation. Do you guys think Damian Lillard will actually ask out at some point this season? Because I know initially he said that he wants to give Chauncey Billups a chance. So what happens if Chauncey Billups is a great coach, but the team overall sucks? Is he going to want out then? I've been a bit of a Damian Lillard trade truther for like the last two years now. So it might be wishful thinking coming from me because I legit think his talent's being wasted in Portland. If C.J. McCollum is your second best player on your team, you're not going anywhere. On like an actual good team, he's probably your third or fourth best player. That being said, I think we're going to get to a situation where by the trade deadline, you're going to see, I guess, moves ratcheting up to actually get him out of Portland. I don't know where he's going to go, but I'm certain he'll have quite the bit of suitors. 
So I expect him to be on some other team come trade deadline, personally. I mean, to be entirely honest, if you look at what Portland did this offseason, they made some nice moves here and there, but there's nothing that fundamentally changes their team. I totally agree with Eric that the ceiling of a team with CJ McCollum as their second best player is probably what, maybe a, a conference finals if everyone else is injured in a lucky year like they had that one time. But most likely it's possibly play-in game, maybe a fifth or sixth seed. It's just not a championship contending roster. And at some point that just has to wear on Damian Lillard. Now, does that happen this season? I'm not so sure. Certainly earlier this summer, Henry Abbott, who's a, a pretty well-known Portland reporter, the guy who started the whole True Hoop Network, said that Damien has asked out, which Damien refuted multiple times publicly. And even in an interview with CJ McCollum, they sort of scoffed at it. And, and so I'd still kind of be surprised if he demanded out. But there's a, a secondary question with this too, which, which is if he does ask out, will Portland acquiesce and just send him somewhere that he specifically wants to go? Because this is another guy kind of like Ben Simmons, who has a lot of years left on his deal. This is not a case of a guy like James Harden who is coming into his last season and then can just leave and bolt wherever he wants to go the next year anyway. So do you guys think that if he did ask out, he would actually have leverage to go where he wants to go? That's a hard question to answer. It really depends on their ownership and their GM and what Dame's relationship with both parties are. Because Damian Lillard has made their franchise relevant ever since he got drafted there. He's been a bona fide superstar, box office, as Stephen A. would say. He's their whole franchise. He never asked for anything more than he was given. He always made do with whatever they gave him. And at least from what we know on the outside, I haven't heard any complaints from Dame. So it's perfectly reasonable if Dame goes up to them and says, Hey, I kind of want to go over here. Do you guys think you can make it happen? I just hope that this offseason, Joel Embiid's been texting Dame Lillard so that maybe that over here that Dame Lillard is talking about is Philadelphia. And yes, I know I'm very narrow-minded in my answer here, but realistically, what other team could give an offer for Dame Lillard like my team can? I mean, with the Ben Simmons. Knicks call. <laughs> I mean, we, we could offer him a bigger city and, and fans that don't boo him. That's actually true. And honestly, <laughs> Oswe, once you think about it, like, Dane would be perfect in New York City. Yeah, like, yeah. but that's. The, the, but you're missing the, the point. Lights, Julius Randle, who's actually a pretty good secondary guy. Yeah, I can see it, man. I can see it. However, in this imaginary impossible scenario where the Knicks somehow trade for Dame Lillard, I mean, what's in it for the Portland Trailblazers? In the case of Philadelphia, you can get a future in Ben Simmons and maybe a a Matisse Thibel or a Shake Milton or a Tyrese Maxey. Maybe even some picks might be thrown in there. Who knows? All I'm saying is it would be one of the most mutually beneficial locations that they could ship Dame Lillard to. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I just think that the Knicks or or many other teams could give a package of a young player, like say in the Knicks case, like RJ Barrett, and then give that sort of crazy deal where they give all their picks that we've seen time and time again in recent trades, like the Drew Holiday trade, like the Anthony Davis trade, like the Paul George trade, where you basically give all kinds of picks and pick swaps and then maybe a young player or two, and then you get the superstar. The Knicks can do that. Any team can do that. And that's the other sort of underlying thing here. Everyone kind of just assumes that if Dame comes available or if Beal comes available, the Sixers can just go grab him. Every other team in the NBA is going to want those guys too. And so it's no guarantee they will actually get them even with someone like Ben Simmons on the table to offer. And just to wrap up this Damian Lillard thought, the other thing that I do think should be mentioned is Damian Lillard has sort of built this reputation and, and sort of identity as the loyal guy. And I don't think that asking for a trade makes him somehow disloyal, but I do think that he certainly seems to enjoy being that loyal guy. So it's another reason that I'm not entirely sure he'll demand a trade so specifically, like I want to be in Philadelphia. If he asks out, it might be a more of a gentle ask out as opposed to like a force his way out to a certain location. So one thing I want to note, we're hypothetically talking about Ben Simmons, a Ben Simmons who... (laughs) was very narrow in the teams that he himself said he wanted to go to. So I'm wondering if Dandy himself, Ben Simmons, would actually go and play in Portland, Oregon. 
So that's that's a question that I'm I'm not so certain Ben Simmons wouldn't put up a fight about. But even moving past that, one of the things that was mentioned earlier was that Dame Lillard had versus James Harden, who had less years on his contract, Dame Lillard just kind of recently signed that contract, which is true. He had less years, but Harden had two years on his contract and he was still able to get himself out of that contract. It wasn't like Anthony Davis, who had one more year left. And I think as far as leverage, Dame Lillard will have like public perceptions on his side because he doesn't seem to be a guy who's looked at as being a malcontent. He has the air of being loyal. And if there's any time for Dame Lillard to try to leverage what leverage he might or might not have, it's right now because the CBA is about to come right back up and the owners are going to do something to stop guys from getting out of their contracts. So ain't no time like the present. Oh, that's a that's a fantastic point, Eric. And on top of that, he's only going to be older, you know, every season after this season. So loyalty aside or his reputation aside, it might just be now for him to make that move. Only time will tell. Hopefully he makes the right decision. Now, AC, you mentioned your Knicks. Well, let's talk about two Nick legends, Jason Kidd and Kristaps Porzingis. Do you guys I see? Wait, 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 wait! I gotta stop you on the Knicks legend. You said it with some salt there, didn't you? Some well, trying to wound me with those comments, calling Jason Kidd a Knicks legend. <laughs> we, my one of my favorite all-time players, if not my favorite all-time player, who we got at the end of his career. So he's not one cool of your there, he's also. he's one of your three best players of the last twenty years. It's not even wrong. <laughs> it's not even wrong. It's really not even wrong. He actually made us really good. He was hitting threes. He got mellowed, running fast breaks. That was that year we, you know, actually had a, a playoff team in the mellow run. So, so you're not wrong. Nick's legend, Jason Kidd. Got you. You agree. <laughs> yes. So my question for both of you, but specifically you, AC, is will Jason Kidd be able to unlock the potential of Porzingis? Because from recent reports that I saw, Porzingis is actually pretty happy with Jason Kidd. Now, some of this could be posturing. I mean, Luka Doncic had a nice little post of him and Kristaps Porzingis, but then again, Embiid and Simmons have had plenty of posts like that. But apparently, according to sources who are close to the situation, Porzingis's whole beef with the Mavericks as a whole was that he didn't like how Rick Carlisle specifically was managing him. However, it seems like he's really warmed up to whatever it is that Jason Kidd has been saying. So what are your thoughts? Well, there's just so much to unpack here. First and foremost, it's worth noting that what Jason Kidd has basically said publicly is that he's going to post up Kristaps a lot more. So of course, Kristaps is going to be on board with this. He wants to get post-ups. But the reality is, the post-up is one of the least efficient types of offensive sets you can run. And unless you have someone who can really pass out of it, a la LeBron or a Luka, it actually loses its effectiveness greatly. And then you look at Kristaps Porzingis. I think Rick Carlisle put him on the three-point line because the reality is Kristaps Porzingis can't really post up as well as you think he can. Yes, he can turn and hit a mid-range jumper, but he doesn't really have a post-up game or even really an isolation game of which to speak of. Where he's at his best is as a pick-and-pop guy, hitting threes, which, you know, a couple of years ago, he showed that he can hit a, a decent clip, and also as a role man, which means that his ideal position is at the five. But Jason Kidd has already said that Kristaps going to play the four, which I guess is what Kristaps wants. And once again, I look at this as a bad sign. I don't think this is going to unlock Porzingis. I think what it's going to do is limit the Mavericks and Luka Doncic in particular. Everything they do should be to maximize one of the generational talents in the NBA right now, and that's Luka Doncic. So to me, this is all a bad sign. And I look at Jason Kidd as a guy who, again, I'll repeat this, is one of, if not my favorite player, he's like one of my favorite players of all time. But as a coach, his reputation is really spotty. This is a guy who's most known for just throwing water onto the court in that famous incident. But apart from that, he's known for doing crazy defenses that change from game to game running crazy lineups out there that make no sense. And he's worn out his welcome in two separate teams before this. So I already look at this as a bad sign. They're going from one of the great modern coaches to a coach who's failed before. And he's already coming up with crazy ideas. 
This is the man who started the foolishness of playing Giannis at the one. That's right. Perfect example. So, I mean, I I don't think playing Kristaps, who is obviously a floor spacing five, at the four in the modern NBA, I don't see how this can lead to anything other than making Luka Doncic hate Kristaps even more when Kristaps is like screaming at him for post touches and Luka's inevitably ignoring him. This is just a bad like mode of operation already and we know it's not going to turn out good. So yeah, I, I, I don't think that's going to end well. Can I add that this is one of the most important things to look for just from the perspective of how this season is going to go? Because there's a world in which the Mavericks could go to the NBA Finals. Like if, if Porzingis is optimized and, and reaches the potential of what we all know he could be, like Luka is that good of a player. I mean, he took the Clippers to game seven with basically no help in back-to-back years. So in a year where there's no obvious favorite in the West, if everything works out for the Mavs, they could go on a deep playoff run here or even a potential finals run. But I just think that this key element using Porzingis is already being butchered by Jason Kidd because it looks like he's more interested in being Porzingis' friend or getting his approval than he is in doing what's best for the team, at least in my opinion. I think Jason Kidd is a unicorn sexual. Like, yeah, <laughs> any guy that's super long has like a, a unique skill package, like, he loses his mind, like, at the thought of being able to just utilize that guy wherever he wants to on the court. So, I think that's what's happening now. He's losing his mind, like, he lost for Giannis, except it made sense to lose it for Giannis. Giannis actually ended up being one of the two best players or three best players in the league. Like Kristaps has always just been as AC will warn anyone who will listen, just wasted promise. Right. AC Kristaps Porzingis is a fantastically talented player. Whoop, and whoop. Yeah. Kristaps Porzingis. Whoop, and whoop. they even had a nice song about him in Latvia. I was a huge fan of him when he's on the Knicks. And I am now not a fan of him, in part because he forced his way off the Knicks. It's not just that. It's that he looks like he could be so much more than he is. You see him and you think Dirk Nowitzki with his shooting touch and his overall skill. And and he has a real athleticism, but he doesn't translate that any real way. He can't really punish the switch effectively. And defensively, when he's in a switch or one-on-one situation, he just isn't good in space. And he's also not nearly as good of a rim protector as you might think. But there is a world in which, at the five, his size is sort of used at its best. And then he's asked to guard, you know, in space a little bit less as well. And offensively, he is a great floor spacer. So he could actually be a unicorn stretch five. But he doesn't want to be. And apparently neither does Jason Kidd. Honestly, I thought when I threw that back to you, AC... It was going to like bring up a lot of depression and hurt feelings, but you handled it. It that does do that. Plum. I'm not going to lie. I, I have <laughs> yeah, a, a you, glass of wine with me right now. Yeah, you handled that a, a lot steps. better than I thought you would. <laughs> That's the wine right there. You know, AC, it's it's clear. Uh, both of us are out here to make you sad when we talk about Poisonous. Job accomplished, guys. Job accomplished. Although I will say, AC. The one point that you and I disagree about with Porzingis is him leaving the Knicks. I get that he's your team, but what were the Knicks when he was on that team? They were garbage, a garbage organization. And I say that as someone, though I make fun of them, I have a huge love for the Knicks. But can you blame the man for leaving? I certainly can't. I mean, did he play one healthy season for us where he played more than like 65 games? No, he was constantly hurt as well. Listen, our our organization was a shit show. Listen to any of our Knicks pods that we've done before where I go through our many failures over decades. We've been one of the worst run franchises over the last 20 years, if not the worst in any sport. But the man demanded a trade in the midst of his rookie contract, and he didn't even show up night to night because of health issues to play. So, no, I don't think he gave the organization a fair chance. And so I I didn't like the way that he left the team. But there's no bearing on what I'm saying right now. I I think that the best version of him can be really good for Luka, but we haven't seen that consistently enough. And that's not even throwing in whether he could be healthy, which, again, he hasn't shown in Dallas either. 
Well, transitioning from one disgruntled big man who forced his way out to another, how much of the center position do you guys think that Anthony Davis will play this year on the Lakers? Now, reports are prior to Russell Westbrook being traded to the Lakers, LeBron had a secret meeting at his house with Westbrook and Davis, and the three of them made a deal where LeBron and Davis agreed that they'd play more at the four and five respectively, and that Westbrook would overall do whatever it took for the team to win. So by that promise, do you guys actually think we'll be seeing a lot of Anthony Davis at the center? Because, I mean, if he's playing the center... I'm sorry, Joel Embiid, but Anthony Davis is easily the best center in the league then. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a hard question. I think it seemed as if he was going to open the season as the center. Prior to Trevor Ariza getting injured and uh, like them having to make some changes in their potential lineup. So now and I suspect he's going to start the first month or two at the four. But... Ultimately, to optimize his potential, I think he does need to play like a significant amount, even a majority amount of his minutes at the five, because we know during the championship season from two seasons ago, he played 60% of his minutes at the five. I think you need to be having 60% or more. And with Russell Westbrook, theoretically, you probably want him playing the mass majority of his minutes at the five. So... Yeah, I, I, I think at some point he's just going to be forced there, but I'm not exactly certain how many minutes he's actually going to play there to start the season. This is the number one question that Lakers have had to answer over the last several years because it's obvious to anyone who's watching that the Lakers are their best of the five because number one, Anthony Davis himself is unlocked at the center position. He is one of the all-time best role men in NBA history because he can catch a lob, he can catch the ball in difficult positions as he's driving. He's really dexterous. He's able to sort of twist his body around and finish. He can also just get over the top, finish a lob. When he's at the four, he's asked to pop a lot more because there's usually like a a non-shooting big standing in his way, like say a JaVel McGee or a Dwight Howard, or this season maybe DeAndre Jordan. And shooting, particularly perimeter shooting from the three-point line, is easily the weakest offensive portion of his game, aside from maybe post-passing. He's basically good at everything else besides those two things. But on top of it limiting Anthony Davis to be at the four, it also hurts LeBron James because now you have just one more guy who's in the way who needs the ball or in the post. And Russell Westbrook, he needs spacing so badly that the Houston Rockets traded away Clint Compella and played with basically no center effectively with Robert Covington and P.J. Tucker as their pseudo-centers, so that Westbrook get as much space as possible to drive to the hoop. And now you're potentially going to start this season due to the injuries that Eric mentioned, not just Trevor Ariza, but also Taylor Horton Tucker, the other guy who could at least nominally play the three for them, assuming that LeBron's playing the four. You're going to have DeAndre Jordan standing there or some other plotting big man and Anthony Davis and LeBron James and Russell Westbrook. It's basically a spacing nightmare. So I do agree with Eric that ultimately when it really comes down to it, I mean, when push came to shove in the 2020 bubble playoffs, when the critical game came in the finals, they started 80 the five the whole way through. They didn't fuck around with, you know, any other lineups with Dwight or JaVale or anybody else. So Frank Vogel knows his best lineup. Everyone knows the best lineup. The question is, when will they have the bodies to actually roll that lineup out? And when will AD be willing to do it and actually play the five? So... I blame LeBron just as much as AD. So there is an issue with AD wanting to play the five and him thinking that there's too much wear on his body during the season playing the five the majority amount of time. But LeBron, for whatever reason, also doesn't want to play the four, even though I would argue I can see where AD's coming from. LeBron's as big and strong as any four in the league, if not stronger than the mass majority of them. So I, I don't exactly understand his reticence because if LeBron decided, no, I'm playing the four, AD has no choice but to play the five. So a lot of this has to do with LeBron. LeBron is, he's the lead here. Well, it goes both ways, right? Because AD is hesitant to play the five for obvious reasons. I mean, AD is one of the most injury-prone players in the league, and playing at the center position is bruising. 
So I'm sure part of LeBron not playing at the four is to kind of help alleviate that because he understands that AD might not want to play at the five for injury's sake. There's also another aspect to LeBron not wanting to play the four, which is, I mean, you said he drives in and he powers through and he scores, right? Well, wouldn't it be easier if he's doing that against someone who's smaller? Yeah, I get that a four is slower than a three, but threes are typically twigs compared to fours, especially if it's LeBron driving through them. So part of that's also LeBron trying to save himself. It's less effort for him to go through a three to the hoop than it is to go through a four or go around a four and muscle through a four. Also height-wise, he can you know get someone on the block and can have him on his hip and then turn around and jump over a shorter three than, say, a potentially bigger four. All great points, Oswe, but they have Russell Westbrook on their team now. And we could play those games when they didn't have a guy who's a horrible three-point shooter and is a drive-and-kick guy and a slasher. But now you have that guy who's a generational talent at what he does, but he's never been a shooter. Like, his mid-range game has had years when it's been very good, but from actually spacing the floor, he's not that guy. So it kind of dictates now that they play the four and the five, so they just have to get over their reservations if they actually want to optimize their potential on the court. I hear you there. I I just wonder, based on their roster holes, all right, LeBron goes to the four. I mean, they're struggling to get two tall guards out. Who's going to play your three now? And then, obviously, you have Davis at the five. Like, I I just feel like they have so many holes in their roster that I would prefer having LeBron at the three for a little bit extra size because who knows what you're going to get from their two guards. All of their bigger wings are either injured or don't exist on the team anymore. That's a great point, Oswe. I think they have a huge hole at this sort of swing 3-4 position. The kind of position that past LeBron teams have been filled by someone like a Danny Green or someone like a Shane Battier, right? Like they don't have that sort of big wing who can guard in those positions. But I mean... Statistically speaking, is there any evidence that playing the center actually makes Anthony Davis more injured? His last few years playing basically full-time center in New Orleans, he barely ever got hurt in that time. Last year, playing basically power forward the entire season, he was completely injured. So I I guess he knows his body better than any of us do. And and same with LeBron. I mean, they probably know the actual physical toll of the game in in ways that we don't. So I'm assuming there is a lot of bumps and bruises, but I don't know. I just don't think that it's outweighed by just how bad they'll be on the court with them in their suboptimal positions and a plotting center there and Russell Westbrook. Yeah, I mean, when you put it that way, you make great points. So let's move on to another person. Anthony Davis is injury prone. Well, how about we talk about a guy who's coming off an injury in Klay Thompson? I mean, the man is coming off of an Achilles injury and an ACL injury. So... I mean, what kind of Clay Thompson will we get this season? I mean, surely he won't be the same lockdown defender and same guy running around through screens that he was before, right? Well, I wouldn't be so sure to say that definitively. I mean, we just saw Kevin Durant come back and play at a level which I'm not sure he's ever played at before, at least as well as he's ever played before, coming off an Achilles injury. So medicine has advanced and... Zach Levine had an ACL injury recently, and he had you know sort of his career season last year as well. So these injuries aren't AC. impossible to come back from. AC, don't forget, at Golden State, they have all that stem cell technology. You know, that's why they never got injured <laughs> all those years. Yeah. Oswee's theory about them with their stem cells has clearly been proven not true with all their recent rash of injuries. Uh, so, 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 so you think they Christopher Reevesing it out here? <laughs> I've been saying that for years. Over a five-year stretch, they faced only two series where the opposing team was healthy, didn't have some catastrophic injury, whereas the Warriors were healthy throughout. So I used to always joke that it's all that Silicon Valley stem cell research going on, so they're getting that level of of treatment and they're never getting injured well they've more than paid for that in the last few seasons in terms of the injuries they've had to their major players what's interesting to me about this squad is if you take clay thompson out of it they really do have the pieces to be potentially very dangerous because you know steph curry showed last season that he can still play at an mvp level i thought he was spectacular last year and then you had a few young players kind of emerging I mean, first of all wiggins had probably his best season as a pro 
And then in this preseason, you've seen sort of the rise of Jordan Poole as yet another scoring option for them. They have a lot of young players, including James Wiseman, who at least showed flashes last year. They have Kuminga, who they picked up this year. They're clearly missing what Clay Thompson brings to the table. So if they can get some facsimile of what he's done in the past, and you combine him with Steph and Draymond and their sort of institutional knowledge and and chemistry that's been built up over basically a decade now, combined with all those young legs they have on this roster to complement them, I do think there's a world in which they can be dangerous, but it's really entirely dependent on what we're going to get from Klay Thompson. After I saw Kevin Durant come back from his injury and have his best defensive season ever at age 32, I don't see a reason that Klay can't come back and be like highly effective. So I'm actually expecting him, all things considered, to be pretty damn good. And put together with all the, the pieces you named and Wiggins coming off of a career year where he also was actually pretty damn good defensively. I can see a scenario where the Warriors are a team to be reckoned with. So I'm I'm actually expecting them to be very good this year. To your point, Eric, they were the number five ranked defense last season, which I don't think a lot of people would have thought was possible given some of the players in their roster, but it's because Wiggins turned around. A lot of their young guys gave them sort of some juice on that end. Draymond is still a dominant and really intelligent defensive player, especially when he's at the five. And with respect to Klay Thompson, even if he's not quite the elite defender he used to be, he's always going to be able to shoot a basketball. That man, in my opinion, has the prettiest jump shot that I've probably ever seen in my life. It reminds me so much of Jerry West jump shots. Like, obviously, I didn't get to watch Jerry West growing up, but I've seen enough clips of him, and you look at it sort of a side-by-side. It's like that textbook jump shot. He's going to have that when he's 70 years old. Clay's the best shooter to me, not named Steph Curry. And I'll be bullish on that until I get proven wrong. So, yeah, I I agree, AC. He's always going to be able to shoot. He's always going to be able to get some buckets. So moving on to another Western Conference team with a major injury, let's talk about the Clippers, guys. Can the Clippers actually stay out of the playing game while playing most of the season without Kawhi Leonard? Because, I mean, think about it. The Nuggets have the reigning MVP and Jamal Murray will be back. The Lakers have gone stronger. The Warriors have gotten Klay Thompson back. The Mavericks are only hungrier than ever. I just feel like the Clippers have a lot going against them right now. And I'm legitimately nervous about their chances in the West. Also, I'm sorry to Phoenix fans. Also the Suns. Uh, and yeah, I guess the Jazz as well. So... Cue the hot take alert. Hot take alert. I'm going to surprise you guys. I routinely get on these pods and I slander Paul George. It's one of my favorite things to do. To me, it's as American as apple pie. I actually think Paul George is good enough without Kawhi Leonard to get the Clippers to the playoffs. And I think their coach is good enough in Tyron Lue to get them into the playoffs. So I expect, no, I guarantee that they will be one of the playoff teams during the spring. Now that is a hot take. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're saying that they will be one of the six teams to avoid the play-in game. Is that right? Yes. Wow. I got to say, I don't really know if I agree with that, Eric. I might have a counter hot take or a cold take, or I'm going to put some water on your fiery hot take. At the very least, right? Let's say Kawhi comes back late in the season. And let's be real. Kawhi Leonard has never come back from an injury until three months, at least, after he's supposed to, right? This guy is going to be really conservative. <laughs> That's like, we so all know true, this. though. We all know this. So let's expect this guy, at best, to come back, like, the last month of the season, maybe, right? So you're telling me that without Kawhi, in the regular season that they're going to finish in front of teams like the Lakers, Jazz, Suns, Nuggets, who I think those four teams to me are like for sure going to be in the top six. The Jazz have proven to be a really good regular season team. They had the best record last season. The Suns were really good as well. I think the Lakers have a lot of top end talent and the Nuggets have the reigning MVP. And then, so basically it's between then the Clippers, the Blazers, the Warriors, the Mavs, and the Grizzlies. 
I feel like at least two of those teams are going to have a better record than Paul George and this bunch of guys that, while they're very good role players for the playoffs, I just don't know if on a day-to-day basis they're going to win enough to stay out of the playing game. I actually think it's it's a really important question that us we posed here because in a world in which the Clippers are outside of the play-in game and Kawhi is relatively healthy, they're definitely a threat to win the West. They have that kind of overall talent where the role players complement their stars well. But if they wind up in the play-in game, we learned that last year just from looking at the Lakers, granted they had injuries, but that's a hard road to come climb out of, especially in a Western conference that's always dangerous. So I'm kind of down on them being able to avoid the play-in game. And as a result, I'm just down on the Clippers in general. You heard it here first, guys. I go into the 2021-2022 season as a full-on Paul George Hive member. Wow. You you went from your man Andre Drummond to now Paul George? Are you a Paul George stand now? So does that mean that you are a fish? Because I know that Osui refers to Paul George as a master fisherman for his very unfortunate catfish incident. So does that make you the fish on Paul George's line? Call me a catfish or caught. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm just wondering, Eric, does uh, Paul George's uh, wife have something against you? Like, is she blackmailing you or something? Like, last episode, you were shitting on Paul George and now you're a stan? What, What happened in like a week? Well, we we know I'm a fervent feminist and and I, I believe in female empowerment. So I um, I'm backing <laughs> her husband. That's what I'm doing this year. It's all about her. Eric, I think all of our fans could take inspiration from your change of heart. That being said, guys, let's take it out east now. What sort of impact will overcoming their playoff demons have on Giannis, Coach Bud, and the Bucks? Because if there was any question about Giannis's ability to play big in big moments, and that's coming from the guy who previously referred to him as Greek yogurt. I mean, Giannis proved that when the going gets tough, he will power through and he will win you the thing. I mean, the man was basically never missed from the free throw line. And the biggest knock on him was the fact that he sucked at free throws. Even Bud didn't coach them to a loss. So... Guys, will the championship actually have an impact on them this season? I don't know, but I know one thing. If he actually has a jump shot now where he's making like one-legged fadeaways, watch the hell out. I will be very, very, very frightened. I have no doubt in my mind that Giannis has overcome whatever limitations that he's had in the past. I think what he proved even in the Nets series in which they went to game seven, but certainly after that is that he has a counter to whatever it is that the defense wants to do. They want to back him into taking shots. He doesn't fall for it, but he's not afraid to drive. He's not afraid to take free throws. Unlike your boy, we Ben Simmons. I'm with you there. The city of Philadelphia is with you. I mean, Giannis is the perfect example of Ben Simmons' shortcomings, without question. I do wonder, so if you look at that Nets series, right? The Nets had no business taking the Bucs to Game 7 with the amount of injuries they had on their roster. And that Nets series epitomized all the failings of the Bucs in the past. From a strategic standpoint, some of the stuff that Bud was trying to do, some of their execution down the stretch as well, at least until the latter half of that series. And then it seemed like after that, not only did Giannis and Middleton and Drew Holiday seem to gain confidence, but so did Coach Bud. And he he just coached a much more natural series. And I think Coach Bud himself deserves a lot of credit for why they ultimately beat Phoenix. After falling down to them, he made a lot of really important adjustments. Even after game one, they ended up losing game two. But we had a podcast when I was raving about some of the moves that Coach Bud made. The question is now, is this franchise collectively just over that? Or does this mean that Bud knows how to best use his players? Or is that just like a lucky opponent that had no answer for Giannis because he's so physically overwhelming and was just the right matchup? And then, you know, they beat a Hawks team, which kind of shouldn't even have been there. I know they beat us with Sixers, but (laughs) I guess that's not saying much. (laughs) Uh, They beat my Knicks too, let's be real, so I can't even talk. But, I mean, the Hawks are not a conference final type of team. So did they just get lucky by facing some of these easy teams? Or did Bud and that team collectively just overcome and get to another level strategically and sort of from a team chemistry and confidence place where we can expect that to continue against a better and healthier opponent this year? Well, 
two things here. Number one, I would not be surprised if in the offseason, Kevin Durant had secret surgery to make his toes a little bit shorter. That being said, they were those awfully close to designing that entire series. Exactly. I mean, the Nets almost won that game, too, right? Like it's it's very possible that the Nets could have won the series altogether. But to say that they just got lucky, I, I find that diminishes the brilliance that the team overall showed. Even Bud himself coached well, right? And regardless of whether or not they just got lucky, whatever mental blocks they had previously, doesn't matter what your circumstance that you win a championship is, when you win a championship, it changes you. You have this boost that comes from it. And and a lot of players, I, I can't say, you know, the players who don't take their jobs as seriously, but certainly for the the Giannis's, the Middletons, the Holidays, the guys who are just workhorses and work at their craft constantly. Those are the guys who really benefit from winning a championship because no matter what you say, you cannot deny the fact that they are champions. And I think that alone will make a difference. Were they lucky to face the opponents they did? Yes. But that is often the case with many teams when they go all the way. Luck is an inherent part of winning and just in sports in general. I think that's a great point, Asui, and it's also worth saying that the fact that people seem to be downplaying or doubting their championship publicly, and it's not just one or two people who are saying that, it seems like a a sort of a common refrain amongst NBA fans, it probably gives them some sort of an additional boost to sort of try to prove people wrong, that they're legit, you know, that they really did win a championship, so they might have a little more fire than regular defending champ will have. So we're going to see whether they're the 94 Rockets or the 2006 Miami Heat. I'm not exactly sure which one of those teams they are, but we're about to learn. And I think two things can be correct at once. I think Giannis had a generational playoffs and he made a leap legacy-wise and for practical purpose in like regards to his career. I also think that a perfect storm of events happened that the Bucks had a walkthrough through the playoffs that most teams would die for. So all things considered, if we have a healthy like slate of teams come playoffs this upcoming season, I'm curious to see if the Bucks actually acquit themselves this year. So we'll see. Well, if the playoffs showed us anything, it showed us that Giannis truly is a real superstar. So my question for you guys is another guy in the East, Jason Tatum. Can he take the next step towards becoming a true superstar? Because the way things are shaping out, the East kind of seems a little open. What do you guys think? I think Jason Tatum's expected superstar leap hasn't happened yet. I think he's gotten a lot better. He's certainly an elite player, certainly an all-star player. I think we're at a point now where defensively, he's actually improved a lot and he's quietly become one of the better two-way players in the NBA. And, and they have Jalen Brown in that squad who's kind of ascended to near his level. But that two guys at that level, no other team has. There's no other team with two young players at at least the level of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. But, and this is a huge but, there's a big difference between being the kind of player Tatum is right now and the kind of player that can be the best player in a title team. And the biggest point of demarcation there is consistency. So we've seen games, even stretches of a few weeks in a row where Jason Tatum looks like, holy shit, he's a top five NBA player. And then we see other stretches of time where it doesn't seem like his consistency is there at all. And I can't shake off personally the feeling I saw of this guy in the playoffs. Granted, there was no Jalen Brown, but it it felt like he was getting, like he just wasn't on the same level as Durant and some of those other guys he was playing against. And even the year before that, When he was facing Miami in that playoff series, he just wasn't generating elite offense consistently enough, which is really the mark of a superstar. Consistency and the ability to generate elite looks for yourself and others. So he has a ways to go yet. AC, I'm warning you, you are drawing the ire of all our fans in Boston. Because to them, Jason Tatum is the second coming of Jordan. He is a god. I mean, here's the reality. I I get why they say that, because he has such an amazing offensive package and he's combined that with defense there's no reason why he couldn't lead the nba in scoring one year while still putting up an all defensive caliber season i mean jordan is an absurd comparison point but (laughs) yeah you know one of the five or ten best players in the league he can certainly be that he hasn't been that yet 
if he can somehow become that player this season, I mean, Boston can win the Eastern Conference. They have a good enough roster around those guys. They picked up some good, solid players pretty cheap. Like they have Schroeder at just basically at the mini mid level. So their team is deep and they have a lot of talent around him, but they still need him to be a star, a legitimate star. You know, I share some of the same disappointment as you, though, AC. You know, you said he didn't have Brown with him, right? But it's not like Jason Tatum is some limited player, right? He is an ultra-talented player who can score at all three levels, is an incredible defender, and really, he should be able to get more out of a lesser team, you know, a team without Jalen Brown. But it goes to the one fundamental flaw about his game, which is his playmaking. Now, Jalen Brown himself is not a great playmaker, but if he's not going to do it, and you haven't been able to consistently get a good point guard to really create, maybe Schroeder could be that guy. But I, I feel like what Jason Tatum needs to elevate his game to the next level is he needs to be able to create. He doesn't need to be a great creator. I'm not asking him to be LeBron or Luka out here. But he needs to be able to create more. Now, we saw flashes of that a little bit last year. But I think that's what he really needs to get to that next level. I think you all pretty much summed up a lot of my thoughts on Jason Tatum. I, I think he has the potential to be, at some point, a rich man's Paul Pierce. But he's not there yet. And all of the tangibles are there. I, d I don't know if he's actually going to actualize it. So... We'll see. I'm really excited about this upcoming year for him and Jalen Brown. So, yeah, something to look forward to. You know, also, when you were talking earlier about some of the limitations, I, I totally agree with you that playmaking is Jason Tatum's biggest limitation. It reminded me that in a lot of ways, the Celtics are sort of the Clippers East in that their two mm. star players are these two way wings. Wow. With a ton of talent, but they kind of lack playmaking and it's fundamental. When you watch them, they can hit a bunch of threes, but they don't always get great looks or make that right extra feed that they, they kind of misplays here and there. But I think if even if he can get himself to Kawhi's level of playmaking, and I think that's also Kawhi's biggest weakness. That'll be enough. Like, that's enough of a playmaker for them to be a dominant team. But you're 100% right that that is the weakness in his game. It's probably the biggest single thing he has to improve upon because he can score and he can defend. He just needs to be able to pass and read the game a little bit better. Now, I mentioned how the East is kind of open right now. And one team that really intrigues me in the East this year has to be the Chicago Bulls. With the acquisitions of Lonzo Ball, Alex Caruso, DeMar DeRozan, Nikola Vucevic, to put all of that with Zach Levine, all of a sudden this team is looking pretty interesting. Are they contenders in the East? I don't know. Personally, I feel like maybe they're like a first round out, maybe a second round out. What about you guys? How good can the Bulls be? I mean, the damn for sure ain't contenders. I mean, they haven't even gotten the play-in game last season. So I think given their acquisition of talent, the question is, can they make at least a six seed and basically avoid the play-in game? And as I see it, it really depends on how good they can be defensively. Because we know they have some amazing offensive personnel, right? They have Nick Vucevic, one of the best offensive centers in the NBA. They have Zach Levine quietly one of the best scorers in the NBA and he's both a slash and he has an amazing jump shot DeMar DeRozan especially in the regular season has proven that he can absolutely anchor pretty good offensive units so the question comes on defense and quietly the Bulls actually had the 12th most efficient defense in the NBA last season now granted a good portion of that was earned before they got Nick Vucevic and Nick Busevich, for all his offensive prowess, he's a poor defender. And unfortunately, center is just the most important position defensively. So even if you're below average, it puts a ceiling on how good you can be defensively. Still, though, they added some good defenders in Lonzo Ball and, and also Alex Caruso. So I, I think there's a world in which they can at least be passable. But, you know, on the other hand, they also added DeMar DeRozan, one of the worst defensive players in the NBA year in and year out. So... I just wonder how good they can be on that end. And that'll probably determine if they can get out of the playing game at least. So as a kid, I was a Bulls fan. I, I think I've told you all this at some point. I'm like... Wait, Eric, runner. Eric, Eric. You are, Wagner. You're Wagner. basically just a front runner. Oh, you yeah. I'm abs <laughs> I am absolutely a front runner. That is true. I only like things where someone shows supreme talent. I am not particularly like loyal I go wherever the best win goes. That's me. 
So I was having a conversation with one of my friends and he noted that I tend to change teams every like five years or so. And I was saying, yes, but I think now the Bulls are looking very, very intriguing. And I haven't been interested in this collection of guards on the Bulls since like the mid nineties. I mean, I think personally, my man Levine and Lonzo, they're going to be a terror together. I cannot wait. Like Lonzo can cover up some of Levine's defensive inadequacies. And he's such a fantastic passer. And, and Levine's an incredible scorer. He's made himself into an incredible slasher slash score for multiple platforms. I'm really, really excited about this team. And I think I want that old thing back. I wonder how they're actually going to end up using DeMar DeRozan, Eric. Do you see them using a little bit more at power forward? Because I find it hard for him to sort of fit on the team any other way just because of his spacing limitations. He's a great isolation scorer and one of the best mid-range shooters in the NBA. But as we all know, he can't make a three-point shot and barely even attempts them. So we saw in San Antonio, he was kind of effective at times, at least offensively at the four. Do you see him playing a little bit of four for them in Chicago? Yeah, I think he's going to play some four. I, I think him and Patrick Williams together, they're going to swap in and out at the three and the four. Um, I, I definitely, just because of spacing reasons, I think you would put DeMar at the four at times uh, to go smaller. So yeah, I, I, I can envision it. I do wonder defensively, if you're having a lineup with DeMar at the four and you have Patrick Williams, who admittedly is going to be a great, great defender. I, I just wonder if Patrick Williams can cover that up on switches with him, but we'll see. I know they're going to be better than they were last year on that end. I'm still scared about how they project defensively with Vucevic as their center because he's, while an offensive talent, no one has ever accused him of playing defense. So we'll see how it works out. All right, guys. So the last thing I think is important to look out for this season has to be the rookies, because by all accounts, this rookie class is one of the best that we've had with guys like Cade Cunningham and the multitude of Jalen's. I feel like these guys are going to be a lot of fun to watch. Now, it should be noted that Cade Cunningham is injured currently. He has some ankle issue, so he won't be playing, I think, for the first couple weeks. That being said, in Summer League and preseason, from what I've heard, the dude can ball. So, guys, which rookie will have the biggest impact on his team? I think it's going to be Jalen Green playing with Kevin Porter Jr. I think he's going to be a terror. He already seems as if he can get buckets, and I think... Defenders are going to have a legit hard time guarding that kid. He's going to be phenomenal. Damn it, Eric. You've totally stole mine. I would also probably say Jalen Green. And To clarify here, I, I don't know how much his play is actually going to translate to wins. So I don't know that, you know, when we talk about impact, if, if it's going to be measured by wins, I'm not sure that he's the answer. But just in terms of who I think will just have the biggest showing it's just going to be Jalen Green in my opinion because one he's going to have lots of opportunity he's on a team pretty much devoid of much talent and they need him to do what he wants to do which is put the ball in the basket this guy has a little bit of that Kobe-esque sort of classic shooting guard frame where he can slash he's super athletic but he also can shoot and he's not afraid to shoot either so I could totally see him having some huge scoring game, and he's going to be box office all season long. I'm super hyped to watch him. Well, guys, unlike you two, I went for the most basic possible answer here, and I'm going to say Cade Cunningham, because think about it like this. He's on the Pistons, and there already were a borderline playing game type of team with Jeremy Grant. Now, you add Cade Cunningham to that, a guy of ridiculous talent, and all of a sudden, you know, maybe the Pistons could make the play-in game. Who knows? Maybe they could even make the first round of the playoffs. It all remains to be seen, but when you think about the archetype that is Cade Cunningham, he seems very much like a guy who makes the best out of everyone around him. So if you translate that to overall team success and the likelihood of his team actually getting wins, I feel like, for me personally, the easy answer has to be Motorcade Cunningham. To your point, Oswee, I think 
If you just go by Summer League alone, I, I was really impressed with how Cade Cunningham, while clearly the most talented player on his team, still would set other guys up and sort of be happy with their success. It's a sign of maturity and really an unselfish player at such a young age. Most guys are trying to make their mark and make all the big splash plays. He's still out there running Detroit's offense as precisely as he can and making the right basketball decisions. The fact that he's that advanced at this young age really bodes well for his career. And I do think that in terms of actually potentially making the play-in game, if he is what we think he could be, it is very possible, especially given how weak the bottom of the East is. Well, only time will tell if any of what we predicted actually comes to fruition. I mean, this has gotten me so excited for this upcoming season. We are in for a treat, all of us. Between the all-star celebration with the 75 greatest players to just an electric class of rookies. You know, there's so many storylines this season. I just can't wait to see what happens. Well, guys, I think that's the perfect place to stop for today. Thank you all so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed. And hit us up at brownmenwontjump at gmail.com if there's something this season that you're looking forward to. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for joining us, and we'll catch you in the next one. Take care, guys.